0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David
1: Axelrod. I first met Sarah Hurwitz in 2008. She had been the chief speechwriter. For Hillary Clinton in her campaign for president, I was the chief strategist for Barack Obama. When Obama won that primary, Sarah came over and joined our speechwriting staff and wrote some of the most memorable speeches for Michelle Obama then and throughout the eight years that Obama was president. A brilliant writer who writes with great humanity in her speeches. You see it in her new book called Here All Along, Finding Meaning Spirituality and a Deeper Connection to Life. In Judaism, a book about her own later-in-life journey to connect with her faith. And on that subject, let me say Happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays to all of you. My old friend Sarah Hurwitz, um, we're recording this podcast in... uh, uh, my old offices, uh, you must have been in here back in the day.
0: I think I was back yeah. in 08. Yeah, yeah,
1: so uh, it's great to see you again. It's great to now see you now. An author, we're going to talk here all along finding meaning, spirituality, and a deeper connection to life in Judaism. Wait, I can't, I got to get the parentheses as well. <laughs> and finally, choosing to look there. Um, we're going to get to all of that, but but it's actually a good place to start. Uh, tell me about. Your family, because one thing that I didn't exactly cull is sort of your family's journey here. It, it feels like many generations ago.
0: Mm. Yeah, so my, you know, my my great grandparents came here probably in the late 1800s, right? Settled in New York City, and my great came from. They came from Poland Lithuania mm-hmm. area. And my great-grandmother was actually really excited to settle there because the City College of New York accepted women, Jews, and poor people. Yes. You know, her daughters, that's it. Yeah. But then they left New York, moved elsewhere, and my grandmother, one of those daughters, she never got to go to school, always wanted to go to law school, be a lawyer, and go into politics. And two generations later, I have a law degree, I became a lawyer, and I have had a career in politics, yeah. which is pretty special.
1: Did... Um and, and and presumably they fled uh, mm. persecution and... Uh,
0: yes, it was... Uh, they fled and they kept trying to persuade some of their family who remained to come over and they didn't and they were killed. Yeah. So I feel a lot of gratitude to this country for, you know, a safe haven for Jews.
1: And then so trace the the, the journey of your of those generations, you you talked a little bit about it, but um, you said they moved out of New York.
0: They did, so they moved to Massachusetts. My grandmother was raised in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is where she met my grandfather. They had my father and my uncles, and he then uh, went to college, law school, and then- He
1: being your- My
0: dad Mm -hmm. went to college, law school, and settled in Boston. And so that is where I was raised, in the Boston suburbs.
1: And um, your dad, had his own political uh, involvement
0: he did my dad after law school, was a speechwriter for a congressional candidate actually named John Dyson, who was running in upstate New York and mm-hmm. Dyson he lost. But if he had won, my dad probably would have gone to Washington and worked for him in Congress, but instead he became a lawyer
1: so is politics a big thing in your home?
0: you know I wouldn't say we were discussing politics around the dinner table, but I always my parents were always following what was happening. My mom was involved in the League of Women Voters. My dad was always kind of following the news really closely, and he kept a quote book of quotes that he loved from... The Kennedys, Mar- Dr. Martin Luther King, all the people who had inspired him growing up, and when I turned about twelve or thirteen, he gave it to me, and so I've actually been adding my own quotes that I love since then.
1: And um, were your parents writers? How, how did you get? How did that uh, come about? That that instinct of yours, that talent of yours?
0: You know, it's funny. My my mom, she was a social worker, and then once we were born, she worked full time raising us. You know, my dad. It's a good he, thing to say. Yes. By the way, yes. Worked. Um, she was definitely yeah. a full time job raising yeah. the two of us. It was yeah. not. She stayed home, or she didn't work anymore. Yeah, you know,
1: I we just did a podcast with Andrew Yang, uh. and um, his one of his uh, impetuses for a universal basic income was he has a child with autism, and his mm. his wife uh, set aside her her, uh, her her career to look after her. Uh, children and it's yeah. incredibly challenging work and yet you know in our society we don't quite think of it in those terms so.
0: exactly i mean she she not only was she working full-time raising two, ch- two children she was volunteering in our community unpaid right but that's work mm-hmm. all of the work she did at our school at yeah, our community right, right? Yeah. like so my mom was working as well, yeah, yes, doing that. Yeah. So she was, but my dad, you know, as a lawyer, he is a he's a good writer. He's a really aggressive editor. So he would edit my my school papers. He would sort of sit down with me and say, "Okay, how can this sentence be tighter? Okay, do you you know?" It was always asking questions, right? He wouldn't do the edits. He would ask me questions when he was constantly making me relook at my writing and tighten it up, make it cleaner, make it clearer. So I think he had a lot to do with with my writing,
1: and. Um uh, you went off to Harvard. Yes. As as, as uh, good good Jewish kids do. Of course. Uh, no, but um, and what, tell me, and did you know what you wanted to do when you went? Did you always, you, your dad was a lawyer, did you aspire to be a lawyer from the beginning?
0: You know, I always, you know, I think I always wanted to go into politics in some way. We took an eighth grade trip to Washington, D.C. with my eighth grade class, and I totally fell in love with it. We got to meet our congressmen. We got to go roam around Capitol Hill and you know, see all where the action was happening. And I just was totally taken by it. So I knew I wanted to do something in politics. Um, and so You
1: interned, right, with uh, for uh, Vice President Gore? I did. When you were in college.
0: That's right. I interned into speech office in the summer between my junior and senior year. And that's where I first got the sense of what speech writing could be and of how cool it is as a job.
1: Did you um, apply to specifically for uh, the speechwriters role, the internship in the speechwriters officer, or, or did they just assign you there?
0: It's a crazy story. I showed up, and there were six people who had a pink dot on their folder, and they gathered us together and said, you're gonna come back later for an interview. We didn't have a placement, so we come back, and it turned out we were interviewing to be an Oval Office intern. And we were interviewing with Betty Curry and Nancy Aaron Reich, the president's, you know, folks in the Oval Office. And Buddy the dog is there.
1: And they said, like, (laughs)
0: how do you feel about, like, wrapping presents and answering phones? And I think I said something like, well, I was hoping to do policy, which like, come on, you're an intern. Ridiculous. Yeah, and
1: Buddy the dog said, she's out.
0: <laughs> exactly. Buddy was offended by my, my arrogance. Yeah. I think they were like, okay, not this one. And I actually got put in the, the vice president's scheduling and advance office. I happened to meet one of his speechwriters and convinced them to let me move over there. So that's sort of a winding road to get there.
1: Yeah. Was Eli Addy there he at was. the time? He who was. He went on to great success. Uh, he We've Done a podcast that, uh. to uh, he, but writing The West Wing and other great shows and uh,
0: yeah, he was actually head of the office then, so he would come down every so often with edits. I, yeah, he was there.
1: Yeah, and did you actually do a lot of? Did they give you meaningful work?
0: You know, I did actually. They let me do a lot of research. I think maybe I wrote like a video script. You know, like when the vice president would tape a sixty-second video on whatever. I think they let me write that although I'm sure they pretty heavily edited it but yeah. yeah
1: and then right. you uh, left college and you went to work for Tom Harkin.
0: Yes that's right. Center from center Iowa. Iowa.
1: Yeah so what uh, sensibilities did you bring from Wayland Massachusetts <laughs> that made you the perfect choice for the center from Iowa?
0: I was really one of I was one of very few non-Iowans and I actually was not the perfect choice because I was a good writer yeah. but I didn't know how to write a speech and after nine months this chief of staff sat me down and said we hear you're thinking about law school you should go (laughs) (laughs) you really we really i would really encourage you to go (laughs) nice
1: yeah how did you interpret that you
0: know it wasn't subtle i think i I got the hint (laughs) so i thought okay you know i just i didn't know how to write a speech i didn't know how to get someone's voice so i thought well i'm bad at this i'll just go to law school and i did
1: yeah did you um well, we'll talk a little bit more because you obviously learned how to write a speech. But what what makes uh, good speech writing? Um, and so you went to law school. You went to work um, in the. Uh, were you out of law school by the time you went to work for West Clark in in two thousand and three? He was running so for president.
0: Not technically. Technically, <laughs> I was a third year law student and kind of moved from Cambridge. To Arkansas, I actually had a. We actually, I, I had a, an apartment in a car in Little Rock, Arkansas, and an apartment in Cambridge. And I was technically back and forth, probably a little more forth than back. Yes. Um flew back for exams in December. It was fine, and then after he lost, flew back again in February.
1: How did that all come about?
0: So my third week of law school, I met a guy named Josh Gottheimer, who's yeah. now a congressman. Now in Congress, yeah. Exactly. He was a classmate of mine, though, and he had been a speechwriter for President Clinton. So we started freelancing together, and he actually taught me how you structure a speech and how you write to be heard rather than read, two very different skills, right? Mm-hmm. That really helped me. And so he got called to work on the Clark campaign and kind of took me with him. So uh-huh. that's how that happened.
1: Well, I want to talk about a little bit more about that, but talk, I'm interested in uh, writing to be heard And uh, Red, talk about that.
0: Totally different skill sets, right? So I'm gonna pause there. I just said totally different skill sets, comma, right, question mark. If you saw that written on a page, you'd say, well, that's a sentence fragment. That's not grammatical. But no one listening to this was thinking, well, that was just not grammar, right? You know, when we speak, you can be ungrammatical, you can have, be colloquial, you can have sentence fragments. It's really like the rhythm that matters. It's a much looser form of writing. Um, writing to be read, it's grammatical, it's tighter, it's more formal. If you read out loud something that's meant to be read with the eyes, it sounds a little awkward, right? It sounds a little stilted. So I think making that transition from that more polished, formal writing to be read to the more rhythmic, kind of lyrical, informal, colloquial writing to be heard, it's a hard transition to make.
1: It also is hard because everybody speaks and communicates in different ways. Yes. So uh, it's important to understand who you're writing for. Yes. Uh, because what you the colloquialisms you may use may be completely foreign to that person or the rhythms of speech.
0: Exactly. I mean, it, it kind of annoys me a little bit when people say like, oh, you scripted Michelle Obama. Okay, first of all, have you met Michelle Obama? No one is scripting Michelle Obama. Good speech writing is not scripting, it's channeling. right? Mm -hmm. It really is channeling that person's voice, listening very carefully, capturing their cadence, their rhythm, their sensibility. That's what good speech writing is.
1: So uh, the Wes Clark campaign, how how was working with him? He was a general, he was highly touted when he got in the race, um, and... uh, It was short-lived. It
0: was. He's he's a very smart, talented, public-minded, really decent guy. I think that race, to me, was a lesson in the reality that you can't just kind of wake up one morning and decide you're running for president, right? Especially if you've lived life very far out of politics. Unless you have
1: 56 billion dollars.
0: <laughs> exactly. I guess, I guess that would be an exception. <laughs> he did not have 56 billion dollars. So I think it was, you know, you need a little time to ramp up to kind of learn how to be a candidate. And he didn't really have that time. So I think early on, I think there was just struggles to adjust. So it was, you know, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great, it was a lot of really great people working on that campaign.
1: And you were, uh, you were working at a law firm uh, during this period as well. Did you take a leave from?
0: So I actually, I worked at the law firm after I graduated from law school. I did the Clark campaign. Then I worked on Senator Kerry's primary in 04. Uh-huh. And then after Kerry lost, then I went to a law I firm. I see. Well,
1: let's let's talk about Kerry then. Yeah. Um, you, uh, what role did you play in that speechwriter? I guess Favreau must have been there That's where well. I met
0: on Favreau. I, yes. I was a speechwriter there. And when I showed up, you know, Someone introduced me to Favreau and they said, oh yeah, this kid, he, you know, he wrote something and I just thought, come on, this kid's 22. I don't know. Then someone showed me what he'd written and uh, I was blown away. He is a naturally gifted guy. So I, I've been really just impressed with him as a writer and as a human being. Yeah. The moment I first met him.
1: And how, did you stick with the Carrie campaign from throughout 2004?
0: Yeah. So it was, I joined it. Let's see. I finished the Clark campaign in February of 04 Finished law school in May of 04 Took the bar and then joined the Kerry campaign. I think around July and I stayed see. there until the end.
1: Yeah. What was that experience like?
0: You know, it was challenging, right? It was challenging because I think you know, it was, we were struggling at the at the end, and you know there were a lot of kind of consultants and pollsters and folks being brought in, and I think as a speechwriter, it's challenging when there are a lot of different voices and input. So it was. It was tough and I, I have a lot of respect for 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 Secretary Kerry, you know this is a this is a very impressive guy who was a Yeah. You know, Did
1: you work, interact with him?
0: Barely. He was on the road so much and I was at headquarters so hardly ever.
1: And were you writing for him? Yes, writing so speeches. So that's hard. You it ne- was you hard. don't have any interaction.
0: Exactly, cuz I showed up in the last, you know, 3 or 4 months of the campaign, which is not really the time to sit down and kind of have a getting to know you with the candidate, right? I, they just needed another pair of hands to just crank out these speeches. So it was hard. I didn't have a sense really of who he was or his cadences. You know, I, I respected and admired him, but that's very different from actually having a sense of someone. So it just, it was tough. Uh,
1: the chief strategist for that campaign was Bob Schrum, who is uh, kind of a historically <laughs> significant uh, speechwriter. writer, yes. um, having written for generations of Democratic leaders, including t- famously uh, Ted Kennedy. Right. Did he get into the... Did you interact with him on I these? I did
0: speeches? a little bit. I, I remember. And did writing, he try to
1: write? Did he get try to get you to write in his? <laughs> he has a very distinct style. He
0: does have a distinct style. I remember I wrote Senator uh, Senator Kerry's 9/11 radio address, his his sort of you know memorial about 9/11, and I, I remember Bob kind of really getting in it with edits and wording. But yeah, he was he was definitely in it.
1: Yeah. What you uh, What you learn from that experience?
0: I learned that it's really tough to have a lot of different voices on a campaign without someone in charge making a decision at the end of the day when it comes to messaging mm-hmm. and polling. Like, you know, it, it's great to have lots of different voices. I'm a big fan. But at the end of the day, a decision has to be made and a clear direction has to be charted. And I think without that, um, you get kind of a muddle.
1: You, um, so you went back to. Uh to the law firm. I did. Had you hoped to go into government? Would you have done that if he had been yes, elected? Yes, I had hoped that. So you went slinking back. He <laughs> did. And what kind of law did you practice? <laughs>
0: so I worked at a great firm called Wilmer Hale, and I did white-collar crimin- you know, congressional investigations. And this was a firm where there were a lot of Democrats kind of riding out the Bush years there. And I got to tell you, they literally, they just threw a book party for me earlier this week. You know, like, they are like my family. You know, it was 12 years ago that I left there, but they, a lot of them were kind of mentors and friends, and they actually, many of them wound up in the Obama administration. So I would kind of see them, we called it the Wilmer diaspora. I would sort of (laughs) see them around. And, you know, I love the people I was working with. The work was not probably well-suited to my strengths. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I I am not, I was surrounded by a lot of great legal minds. I am not one of them.
1: You, um... And, and and then you left again to work for Hillary Clinton. How did that come about? Was it through Josh or?
0: It was, and it's actually a funny story. Josh came to me and maybe November of 06 or so and said, look, Hillary's looking for a chief speechwriter. You should apply. And I was like, absolutely not. I am not qualified. Why? I felt like Hillary Clinton. I mean, she's one of my heroes. I'm not qualified. I had been deputy chief speechwriter for both Clark and Kerry. Just footnote there, but nope, not qualified. Came back a month later. Asked again. I said no. Came back a month later and said, okay, I think they might hire co-chief speechwriters. Would you do that? I said, okay, that feels safe. I think I can do that. Go through the whole interview process, meet with Hillary, whole thing. I get a call from Josh. Okay, they want to hire you, but they don't want co-chief speechwriters. They just want one. And I thought, wow. I think he may have tricked me. It's (laughs) possible. But, you know, I'm grateful, right? He may have realized I was just lacking in confidence and kind of you know, tricked me into doing it. But I'm so grateful because that job was a really important part of my career. So talk
1: to me about writing for her. And I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be candid. I mean, I know her. I, I worked for her in, in, when she ran for the Senate. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I knew her to be a warm, funny, incisive uh, person. A lot of that didn't always come out in public yeah um how do you wrestle with that as a speechwriter
0: yeah you know it's i've i have the same impression of her i mean she's someone i'd always kind of admired from afar as one of my heroes growing up frankly and then when you actually meet her you realize she's funny she's sassy she's like your warm jewish mother she'll be like are you eating enough are you happy are you married (laughs) you know she's so loving and she's very she's very funny right she's very edgy and warm and you're right; it doesn't come across with the speaking. It's something I th- I've thought a lot about since. Then. Or her
1: interactions with the media. Yeah. I mean, she just was on Howard Stern. I guess that was that was better in <laughs> right. terms of just sort of letting it hang out there. But you know, uh, I, th-
0: I think a lot about the generational issues here, where I think that when she was coming up as a young lawyer, you know, wasn't really valued for you to be warm and fuzzy and fun and charming. You had to be tough and strong, and you had to know more than the men in the room. You that was how you succeeded as a woman and to do that for decades and then suddenly be thrust into this arena where you have to be funny and warm and likable and, and not offend anyone and you know, that's a very different, it's a big transition. So yeah. I, I kind of, I think it's a generational issue. Honestly, I do.
1: Yeah, no, I think the burdens uh, of uh, gender bias yeah. and expectations are are, are big. You started off, you guys were the sort of prohibitive favorites um, and uh, it it didn't work out. And did you you sense that it was moving in the wrong direction? At what point did you say, man, this doesn't feel right?
0: I did towards the end. You know, you're right. At the beginning, it really did feel like, okay, she is the presumptive favorite. This is going to work out. And I, and, you know, you guys, I think were polling in like the single digits. Yeah. you know, it was really low down. Those guys,
1: meaning the Obama. Yes, the Obama campaign. folks. You know. Yeah, I mean, how were you? How did you guys perceive us at that time?
0: I think we perceived you as, as you know, as someone sort of an, an upstart, like sort of a you know, it was just you were polling so low. I don't think that I, I mean I didn't see it as like oh this guy is really a threat, right? Just because of polling, I realized pretty quickly that this you know. Obama was a singular talent, right? And I think in the, I'd say in the final months of the campaign, I began to feel like, okay, I can kind of see where this is going. You know, I, I actually remember listening to his uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Day speech, um, which I, I think it was, I think it was 08. And, you know, I was sitting there crying, listening to it. You know, he ended it with that beautiful story about the young woman named Ashley. And yes, you know, it just, I, you know, I thought, this guy has something really special,
1: yeah. What, uh, having devoted yourself, as you did, to that campaign, um, you ended up writing the speech, her withdrawal speech, in, after this marathon, epic primary, the longest in history. Um, how, how hard was it to write that speech?
0: It was tough. Yeah, It was tough because there was a lot of business that needed to be done in that speech. Right. first of all, she needed to give a full-throated endorsement of Obama. Second of all, she needed to she needed to honor all these supporters who put their hearts and souls into her. And I think if you just get up and you say, well, sorry, it didn't work out, support Obama, they don't feel heard and seen.
1: And right? we should point out, I mean, uh, those kind of campaigns are hard, feelings get frayed. Yes. It's not easy to say, well, we're going to give up after two years and— good luck and we're with you. It's not It's exactly. It's not. It's not, it's not, easy not easy to make that walk across that bridge.
0: That, it, you're so right, especially because it's not like there was like a six-month healing period and then there was the speech. It was like very quickly, right? It's a very quick turnaround. Suddenly you, you go from saying like, you know, this toxic primary to, okay, now I'm on board and supporting you. It's challenging. So I think, you know, there's the wanting to honor supporters and also wanting to make a statement about what this candidacy meant for history and for the future sort of three kind of different things. And to do all of them was tricky and was challenging. And, you know, and they're also contradictory, right? In the full-throated endorsement of Obama, I think some of her supporters may have heard, well, what about us? We were, you know, we yeah. were kind of taking him on. But I think she did it well. Like, I think we figured out the balance.
1: You wrote, every, every speechwriter wants lines that, they're, uh, that are ascribed to them for perpetuity that will wind up in their obits and so on, which for, for you will be in... in you know, half a century or more from now, God willing, right? Yes, but um, uh, but yours was uh, about the 18 million cracks. In the ceiling.
0: I would love to accept credit for that line. It was. I'm not giving my it to line. you. Don't no, do it. Not don't, my no. line. Not my line. A guy named Jim Kennedy, who is a former communications director, he came up with it. I feel very guilty when people give me credit for it when I don't well, like it. Well, that shows. People.
1: That shows a good uh, I, ho- honorable. The hottest places in hell are spirit. reserved
0: for those who take credit for other people's work. Well, there's I plenty of other stuff to put in your <laughs> obit, so don't don't
1: don't worry about that. So two days after. Uh, she dropped out you got an email from your old buddy yes, John Favreau. I did. And what did he say?
0: He was it was a really classy kind email where he just said, you know, I'm really sorry about Hillary. Hope you're doing okay. I'd love to talk to you about coming to work for me. And I just thought, Yep. Absolutely. No hesitation. Really? Yeah, really. So really. you didn't
1: feel any of that antagonism or
0: No. I mean look, were there some hard feelings left over from the kind of attacks back and forth? Sure. But you know, there was a bigger mission here, like a much bigger mission, and I—I I didn't even hesitate. And just because I loved Hillary and worked for her, it didn't mean I hated Obama, right? I think that was sort of a misconception. You know, I watching him from her campaign, I was impressed by him.
1: Yeah. Right? So and Dwayne's, how was how was the transition from one campaign to another? You must have you having come off of one campaign, and a week later, what, you know, you walk into another. The, you must have been comparing and contrasting.
0: Yeah, you know, the transition was funny. I would say the first few weeks, there was some kind of good-natured teasing, right? And also some kind of, why did you guys do this? You know, the Obama folks were saying, you know, why did you guys say this? Why did you do that? That wasn't fair. And I remember saying to them, guys, don't be sore winners. Yeah, okay? that's <laughs> like, a bad look. <laughs> I'm like, you won. That's, I hope so, I wasn't one of them. No, you were not. Yeah. I mean, they were. it was good-natured. It was loving, but I have to say within a few weeks I felt like part of the family. And I think part of that was the welcome you gave me. And also then Senator Obama, he called me the day I wrote my first speech and said, like, I'm so happy to have you here. You know, I met Mrs. Obama when I was assigned to work on her convention speech. And it, she treated me like those seventeen months hadn't happened. It was like, Okay, you're on my team, you're here, we're doing this.
1: Yeah. You you know, um that speech was probably Uh, the most important speech of her life because she had been so caricatured uh, during the course of that campaign and uh, it was painful, uh, you know, to the point where she was uh, really not eager to go out in public, uh, felt she'd been ill-served by the campaign. I think she was probably right about that because we sent her out there. There was this assumption that, you know, she's, she's brilliant and she... And she was inadequately staffed. And as you know, likes to be prepared in every way. Um, and so that you walk into that. Yeah. So how, tell me about that, how you guys develop your relationship. And tell me about that particular speech at the convention where she sort of reintroduced or in many ways introduced herself uh, to the country.
0: It was, you know, I have to be honest when they said, when Favreau said to me, okay, we need you to write Michelle's speech. I kind of said, like, wait a second. I'm here to write for him just because I'm the girl I'm writing for. Yeah, women's work. Right, exactly.
1: That was, by the way, Stephanie Cutter. You know, when we (laughs) recruited her, she said, I don't do girls' work here.
0: (laughs) Well, she was the one who insisted I write the speech because I'd worked with her on the Kerry campaign. Uh And I'm so glad that no one listened to me because. You know, the minute I remember going, walking into a conference room with her, Stephanie Cutter actually had her hand on my back, was sort of shoving me forward. As (laughs) As I Stephanie will. As you will, right? And I was saying, Stephanie, this is a bad idea. I've been attacking her husband for 17 months. She's going to hate you. She's going to hate me. And Stephanie was like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. So she kind of shoves me into this room. And I could see, you know, she was so warm, Mrs. Obama. She was so welcoming. But I could see that, like, she looked a little bit vulnerable, right? Like, She'd been getting this just this brutal press right yes. angry black woman, all this sexism and racism, and you know but she-
1: you know, I think what happened was there was a there was so much trouble um kind of caricaturing Obama, he kept defying these caricatures, so they looked for surrogates yes. to caricature to get at him
0: exactly, and
1: she was a victim of that
0: exactly, and it was it's such a it's just such an old, ugly thing, the angry black woman really it's like. Okay, guys, and that's not her. I mean, it just it was. I, I was really angry on her behalf that this was happening. So, you know, we met, and then we met for ninety minutes in her living room in Hyde Park, and she just said, "Here's who I am. Here's who I am." And she talked about being a lawyer, working in public service with young people. She talked about being a mom and how she said, "You know, being a mom, like this is the most important thing." I and mean, she just talked, right, talked about, about her folks, too. Talked about her parents, right? Talked about her dad, who mm-hmm. had passed away, who she was close to. Talked about her mom. She just kind of laid out who she was. It wasn't like, here's the speech I'm going to give. It was, this is who I am, Yeah. right? And I think, that, and that was the beating heart of the speech.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean, the, the, and it was incredibly, it, first of all, she transformed her standing overnight. Literally overnight, she went from uh, underwater and polling to to really, really popular based on that one speech and that uh, performance. And it was not just helpful to her, but, you know, she, she is the great American story in many ways. Uh, you know, her values, um, her family history, uh, that, that sort of sense of striving um, and achieving and fighting through adversity. Her father had multiple sclerosis and worked in a city job here for decades and struggled with that, but fought for his—you know, it was just the whole thing was just so fundamentally uh, the great American story, and it helped not just her uh, repair her own standing, but uh, it it helped uh, Senator Obama— as well in that campaign. I just want to say a word about my friend Stephanie Cutter, Mm -hmm. uh, who is one of the really brilliant um, uh, message strategists and tacticians uh, in our country today. She is extraordinary, Um, extraordinary. But tough as nails. And, um, you know, the thing that probably nothing— uh, you, you know, obviously, you were such an important part of it. Stephanie coming along and being willing to take on that assignment and making sure that, uh, in fact, uh, Michelle Obama was prepared, got what she needed, fighting for the resources that she needed, making sure that everything was done uh Properly and then really strategizing about how best to use her was enormously important. And so, she
0: was a joy to work with on that speech because she so gets messaging, she gets authenticity. I mean, I I have learned a tremendous amount from working for her, and I, I really I'm a big fan.
1: Talk about that word authenticity yeah. because you know I think it's probably the most important quality someone can have in public life. Certainly in a presidential race, um, what does
0: it mean to you? Oh, yeah. This is I I talk it's become such a cliche, which is frustrating to yes. me. What it means is that you talk like yourself. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say this. You know, when I see politicians standing up there and being like, hardworking American middle class family values are the heart of the American dream and the economy. I'm like, have you ever turned to your spouse, your colleague, your neighbor and said, you know, Bob, I'm just thinking that hardworking American middle class family values are the heart of the American dream. No one talks this way. Yeah. If you wouldn't say something to one person- And if don't, they did, you'd move. You'd probably, move, yes, right? Yeah, you wouldn't leave right. the neighborhood. Like, if you wouldn't say something to one person, don't say it to many people. It doesn't get better. You have to talk like yourself. You have to say something true. And this is the thing I love so much about working for you all those years, is you are like allergic to pablum and slogans and sound bites. You're just, you're like allergic. God help us. If we ever had some stupid soundbite in a speech, it would be like red pen crossed out. <laughs> Because it's insulting to the American people. Well, let
1: me, let me just tell you um, that, um, and not to uh, be patronizing in, in, in exchange for your kind <laughs> words, but um, uh, I'm surrounded by some of my team here. Everybody knows I have a, I have a photo in, behind my chair at the uh, Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and it's a photo of the speech writing team at the White House, uh, and, uh, every, I've said this many times, the best day, the best part of my day every day was sitting down with the wordsmiths. I had this conversation with Adam Frankel recently, who was one of, one of them. Uh, and that session was so energizing, just the exchange of ideas and just the talent in that room, you know, Favreau, your old deputy from the, Clinton campaign, John Lovett, yes, uh, love it, was there uh, sometimes wearing pants, sometimes not, um, and uh, you know just the, just the entire Cody Keenan, yes, um, never a more. I don't think there was ever a more brilliant crew, and it was just such a such a gift. Now I will say, my two years in the White House were very intense. It was the beginning of the administration. We had a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. Wouldn't trade that experience for anything. But I was spent at the end of those two years. I went home to work on the campaign. Um, you were there for eight. Yes. Um, and tell me about the life uh, associated with working in the White House because it's a great privilege. Every time, I'm sure I, I'm sure you felt the same way I did. Every time I walked into that building, I felt privileged to be there, and I felt like I was part of something uh, extraordinary. Uh, but there's a price to that.
0: There is. I mean, it was the greatest privilege and honor of my life. I would not trade a minute of it. But yeah, it, it really, it does subsume your life, right? Like you, you know, I can't I can't say to Mrs. Obama, oh, I'm sorry, I just, I don't have time to write the speech, I have a personal thing I want to do when like the speech is tomorrow, right? Like your schedule is really tied to the principal schedule. Like my schedule, you know, I vacationed when Mrs. Obama vacationed, right? That's how it worked, and it's very erratic, You know, you think if things happen last minute, crises happen, you really don't control your schedule. So it is, um, it's a lot of work. It's stressful. The scrutiny that every word she said was under, that was scary. You know, I worried a lot. We scrubbed every speech, fact checkers, lawyers, communications people. I mean, the level of fact checking that every speech went through because we were so worried about the tiniest error, the tiniest inaccuracy, you know, that kept me up at night. It was stressful.
1: I have to ask you as an aside, and I want to get back to uh, back to the stress because it leads into uh, into your book. Uh, but um, there was uh, this incident around the 2016 Republican convention when um, Melania Trump spoke, mm-hmm. and she used a phrase that many of us who had been around uh, the 2012 convention and, and after uh, recognized uh, as familiar. Uh, and it was a line from one of your speeches. You must have been listening to that too.
0: Here's the funny thing: it was actually more like a couple paragraphs. But the funny thing is, I went <laughs> I'm to trying bed. To be... <laughs> no, I don't even. Maybe it was it just. Maybe it was. Okay. Who knows? No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I went to bed early that night because I was not feeling well, and so I didn't see the speech. But I woke up the next morning, opened my phone, and had messages all <laughs> night long. Reporters calling. Colleagues emailing, where are you? Where are you? Why aren't you? Can, do you see what's happening? I thought I was in trouble, that I'd done something wrong. I finally figured out what had gone on, and I swear my very first reaction was, there but for the grace of God, go I. Like, I just think— That's it,
1: probably what every speechwriter what think, every yeah. it's,
0: It is so easy as a speechwriter when you're rushing it. You, things happen, right? And we were so blessed to have these extraordinary fact-checking apparatus to— to make sure things like that didn't happen, so my response was there, but for the grace of God, go I. I mean, yeah, I was very lucky to have the support. And I it needed. turned
1: out she explained she had read the line and she had mm-hmm. said this is she she had shared it with the person writing her speech as an example of, and the person misunderstood and
0: exactly, which well, is a human mistake that could happen to me, that could happen to any speechwriter. So I, you know there, but yeah. for the grace of God,
1: go I. So back to the stress, because <laughs> they, actually that is part of the stress of being a speech writer. Is, yes. you, know, you, want, you have to, the stress of writing the speech and then the stress of the aftermath of the speech and is everything going to go as planned. But yeah. um, you, you describe in your, your book, um, you, you went through a, a, a personal breakup yeah. uh, and you were sort of at loose ends. Yeah. Uh, even as you were in this rarefied air of working in the White House, you were you were in some ways broken.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I went through this very painful breakup, and I was just I was lonely and anxious, and I I suddenly had this time on my hands that I had not had before.
1: Was it not to pry too deeply no, into okay. this? Was Was life in the White House incompatible with having? a stable relationship. You
0: know no, it really wasn't. It wasn't the kind of work issue that, you know, it was just we weren't the right fit, mm-hmm. right? And it and but it's it was hard. I find it very hard to break up with someone who's a wonderful person even if it's not the right fit because it's sort of hard to let go of someone wonderful even when he's not wonderful for you. So mm-hmm. that to me was really painful and I just was feeling like lonely and at loose ends and I just happened to get an email about an introduction to Judaism class and I really I signed up not because I was gonna go on a spiritual journey or an existential crisis. I signed up because I was lonely and bored. Could have been an email about a karate class or a photography class, and I actually probably would have taken it. I was really desperate to fill my time, and I thought, It'd All right.
1: interesting a karate book.
0: I, I mean, maybe I would yeah. be a black belt by now. I'm just saying, you know, it was who knows where my the the journey I could have taken. But uh, you know, I grew. I didn't have much Jewish background, right? I went to synagogue twice a year. Kind of pieced out after my bat mitzvah. And so I, I, I didn't know anything about Judaism. Let's
1: stop there for a second. This is personal to me because yeah. your story is very much the story of so many. So many. Uh, That's so what many everyone uh, says to me. Uh, Jews, including me. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, my par- my grandparents were Orthodox Jews. And it was expected that I would be bar mitzvahed. Mm-hmm. But it was mostly explained to me that uh, I had to do it because it was expected. Exactly. And, um and. It was all about mastering the rituals, but it was the benefits uh, primarily were uh, pleasing my grandfather and the gifts that you'd get that day from your friends. Yep. Um, but it was just something to endure, and uh, created a kind of uh, resistance. Uh, you know that that. Uh, that I've felt, even as I feel completely tied into the, to, to, uh, the culture and history. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so my story is, is, is your story, yeah. uh, but you took it to a different place.
0: I did. You know, growing up, going to two boring services at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, boring, incomprehensible, a long, boring seder, and then a bat mitzvah that, you know, similar experience, right? I just thought, well, there's nothing to see here. This isn't where I'm going to find meaning or spirituality. But doing this class as an adult, I was like, wait a second. Actually studying Jewish texts as an adult, I was like, "There, this is an edgy, radical, subversive, insightful, and very smart tradition with a lot of wisdom about how to be a good person and how to live a meaningful life and how to find adult spiritual connection. You know, if you're gonna tell me God is a man in the sky who rewards you when you're nice and punishes you when you're naughty, I'm out. I'm an atheist, sorry, don't buy it. See evidence to the contrary every minute of every day. But studying Jewish theology and spirituality, that's not what the Jewish God is, right? There is an incredible diversity of theology and spirituality. I mean, I just think, wait a second, where has this been all my life? But really, where has where this been? Why do we present American Jews with some of the most off-putting parts and not share with them the most amazing transformational wisdom? It's sort of a communications problem. So
1: talk about the most important things that you learned and the evolution of this and you you wrote a chapter that i think has gotten a lot of attention about sort of discovering god yeah that started in the woods of pennsylvania (laughs) yes uh talk about talk about that
0: yeah so i think you know for me the core animating beating heart idea of judaism is the line in the torah that says we are all created in the image of god and i don't care whether you believe in any kind of god or deity what that means, as a rabbi named Yitz Greenberg puts it, is that we are all infinitely worthy, we're all equal to each other, and everyone is totally unique. No one else is like us. And you can be like, well, obviously, Sarah, I think we all believe that. No, we don't. There's not a single person who believes that. If you actually believe that, why would you ever walk by a homeless person on the street and say, oh, I'm sorry, sir, not today? If that person were Barack Obama, that person were a celebrity, you'd stop. If, that, if there were just a laptop on the street, you would stop. We don't fundamentally think that a celebrity and a homeless person are infinitely worthy, totally equal, and unique. We think of them differently in terms of their wealth, status, fame, and Judaism is a protest against that differentiation of people. So I think that's the core idea. As for God, yeah, I went on a silent Jewish meditation retreat six months after I took this class, knew nothing about it, showed up. You
1: were you were um, slightly skittish about the whole
0: <laughs> yes. journey. I mean, look, I am not like a woo-woo person. I I just, I'm a pretty skeptical. The touchy-feely stuff makes me a touch nervous. But I showed up on this retreat, and it's very powerful. I mean, when you spend days meditating and praying, and your life, your mind gets quiet, you're off of, away from screens and work, you start to have some insights about your life. And then on one of the final nights of the retreats, they told us that we were going to do an exercise where we would go out to the woods where no one could hear you, and you were... to talk out loud to god for about 45 minutes without stopping so like if you run out of things to say you say i've run out of things to say keep talking don't know what to say um if you don't believe in god you say i don't believe in you this is dumb i'm talking to open air you just have to keep talking and it has to be out loud
1: and you're alone
0: alone in the woods talking out loud to god which you know i didn't have a god to talk to right and i just thought this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard and I actually worried. I'm like, are there security cameras out there? Like, what if someone sees me? I'm like, am I going to lose my security clearance? I mean, I thought this was so dumb, but I'm also a rule follower. And I was like, this is what we're doing now, so I'm going to do it. And I started out being like, hey, God, you do good work because it's nice nature, but there is no you. I don't, who am I talking? Like, and I just found myself getting more and more kind of agitated and emotional. And Why? Just, I don't, you know... I was still feeling really anxious and kind of unsettled after this breakup, and I think that it was just a moment of kind of unbridled self-expression, and I I kind of was just started to just talk about how frustrated I was with dealing with anxiety still, you know, like I've struggled with anxiety my whole life, and I was like, why am I still struggling with this? You know, I have this fancy White House job, everything's going so well, and like I'm still struggling with anxiety, and I just like just sort of, I just started to get very emotional. I mean, it was totally shocking to me how emotional and kind of intense it was. But uh, I found it really moving, surprisingly so. And a lot of people who do this practice, even if they're skeptical, they have a similar experience.
1: When th- this period, this 45 minutes was over, um, what, what did you conclude? I mean, you know... Ha- how, what in your own mind? What explain? What um? What God? Yeah. Uh, what what God you confronted out there, and what you yeah. came back, and what understanding you gained from this exercise?
0: Yeah, you know, I think when I concluded that exercise, I was I didn't even know what to think. I didn't have a coherent conclusion. But I think in the course of that retreat, in the course of my studies and experiences in the years since. I have a definition of God that you try to articulate it and you sound like a moron. I'll be totally honest. You know, I think that God is everything. That's a disclaimer. So now you can <laughs> That's proceed. A disclaimer. Now I'm, now I'm yeah. going to say this. You know, I think that God is everything. I think you're God and I'm God. I think it's the animating energy of the universe. And the idea that there's a barrier between us is an illusion. You know, I think the homeless man on the street is actually a manifestation of the divine. Right? That's a very different way of looking at people. I think that God is what Martin Buber says arises between two people in deep human relation. Like when they're really fully seeing each other's humanity, I think to me what arises between them is God. I love Mordecai Kaplan's definition that God is the process by which we become our highest, truest selves. But I also relate to this animating energy of the universe as a you. I do, because I have a human heart and mind. I can't relate to this ineffable, animating, massive thing. You can't love a force. You can't love an energy, right? So my mind conceives of this thing as kind of a being, even though I don't think it's a being, I relate to it as a being. That's nuts. I can't justify that. That that's not rational. But I also think that's what my human mind and brain is capable of. I think if you asked a tree how it relates to the divine, it would use a different language because it's a tree, right? It doesn't have a language of love and relation. You know, I, I just think trying to articulate in language something that just feels so inexplicable is is tough. But I think we've all had intimations of it. You know, if you think of the moment your child was born your parent took their last breath you were standing out looking at a night sky feeling so tiny in this infinite universe you had a moment of profound love with someone you know like we have these moments and you want to call it neuron firing in your brain sure that's a fine explanation i'm not trying to impose god on anyone but i call those moments god right to me those feel divine you know can i explain that in a court of law no i can't but does it make my daily life be filled with much more awe, wa- much more awe and wonder, and gratitude, and openness. Yeah, it does. Yeah,
1: well, that's that's really what I wanted to ask: is um, how has this changed you? And you, uh, are you less anxious? Are you more grounded? Do you are you happier uh, having uh, gone through this journey? And then, uh, we'll, well, well, let's start there. And then I want to ask about specific lessons of. Judaism that you've taken that you when you talk about it as being the guideposts of uh, leading a a good Yeah life
0: My answer to all those questions is yes Like I am I am so much I am much happier. I am much more grounded I feel much more connected to just something bigger right something that since that first retreat has sort of Just been with me. It's like it's kind of a more of an openness to life. It's an understanding that I think a lot of us go through life not feeling not much of anything at all because we're kind of closed and I think when you have that experience of kind of opening up you experience more pain but also more joy right so I feel like I'm much less kind of numb and checked out and much more present Um, I think I've also just met a community of people in Washington DC and around the country who love to wrestle with these big issues that I love to wrestle with you know who are really struggling with like What does it mean to be a good person and lead a worthy life and have spiritual connection? You know, I've come up with, you know, just to have this community of rabbis and scholars and other Jews who engage with this stuff, that has been tremendously meaningful. And just to have a sense of the depth and wisdom of this tradition that for so long was just like, oh, I'm Jewish by heritage. I'm, I'm culturally Jewish. Now I have a sense of what it actually has to offer. And I feel such pride. Such pride. I mean, Listen, how many how often do you hang out with like Ammonites or Hittites or Amalekites? You don't, right? But the Israelites, we're still here. We're Jews. That's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah. The the um some of the, the language is kind of well, archaic, yeah. impenetrable. <laughs> Um, so how do you derive from that modern meaning?
0: Yeah, I mean, the Torah, which is the first five books of what Christians call the Old Testament, it's 2,500 years old, newsflash, really old, constitution, more than 200 years old. If we lived by the original version of the constitution, that would be evil. It would be an abomination. Same if we lived by the original version of the Torah, you reinterpret it. You We amended the Constitution to get rid of slavery, thank God. We amended it to let women vote, thank God. You know, we we continue to amend this document. Same with the Torah, right? We have spent 2,500 years reinterpreting, reimagining it to make it consistent with our moral sensibilities at the time. Ancient rabbis read the Torah's provision of an eye for an eye and said, oh, no, 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 no. That means an eye for monetary compensation, of course. No, it doesn't but they didn't like what they saw and it wasn't consistent with their basic morality, so they reimagined it. They did that with a lot of things and we've continued to do that today. This is why women are now rabbis. This is why gay people are now married under 90% of Jewish practice today. This is why gay people are rabbis. I mean, 90% of American Jews ordain women as rabbis, gay people as rabbis, and perform gay marriages because we've continued this process of reinterpreting. So that's what you have to do. You have to make sure that all of the language and provisions are consistent with a core moral sensibility that honors the fundamental dignity of every human being.
1: Yeah, because there are not just 10 commandments, but there, there are hundreds exactly. of, uh, of, of commandments. Uh, now, and how literally do you take those?
0: Not very. i uh, be, you know, I, it's funny, a lot of people, they'll say, well, are you more observant now? And I'll say yes. And they'll say, no, you're not. You don't honor the rules of Shabbat. You work on Saturday. You don't keep kosher. You don't go to synagogues very often. And it's like, that's interesting. Those are a few commandments. But see, there are these other commandments that demand that I conduct my business affairs honestly, that I speak kindly, that I care for those who are struggling and vulnerable, that I worry about the stranger. I take those very seriously. And ultimately, every Jew is picking and choosing, right? We're all deciding what to emphasize and what not. People will claim that they're not. Yes, they are. I can always find you someone who's doing more than you are.
1: And would um, would uh, an Orthodox Jew uh, accept that same explanation, or would they accuse you of taking kind of a smorgasbord approach to to faith?
0: I think they probably would say the latter, right? I do think that that's you know in the Orthodox world there is. You know, there is less, a little bit less picking and choosing. They're still picking and choosing, let's be clear. You know, they're they're still, you decide what to emphasize or not. But that is, you know, it is a more literal interpretation of things. But even so, the Orthodox world, very diverse, number one. Number two, some of the the most warm and enthusiastic feedback I've gotten from my book has been from some of the most profound, like deeply Orthodox people I know who say, you know, Sarah, I don't agree with how, you know, you practice differently than I do. I don't agree with some of the points you make, but I see that you did your homework and I see how much you love this and I love it too." Mm-hmm. Right? So they actually they actually agree with a lot of my book because it's me sharing my love and my interpretation of Judaism and I think they appreciate that.
1: As we sit here today, there uh, there was uh, this tragic uh, shooting in uh, in Jersey City, which is where my family actually came oh, from. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, uh, but it's just part of this rising tide of anti-Semitism. Why do you think uh, this is happening? And, um, and how, how concerned are you?
0: Yeah, well, I'm very concerned to answer that the second question. As for the first question, look, I, I don't think it's a secret that this has been rising over the last few years. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that when you have a national political leader and a number of people who enable that person who deliberately foments anti-Muslim sentiments, anti-immigrant sentiments, racist sentiments, when you have someone deliberately riling up those kind of sentiments and empowering and enabling folks who hold those sentiments, that affects Jews as well. You don't meet many white supremacists or neo-Nazis who say, "Oh, I love Muslims, but I can't stand immigrants," or "Oh, I adore African Americans, but I just don't love Jews." They hate all minorities. When you empower them and embolden them and inspire them, that affects all minorities. So I, I do think that the current president, um, yeah, I think that this a lot, some of this, a lot of this falls to him. Um, but I also think we're seeing left-wing anti-Semitism as well. We're seeing it on college campuses. We're seeing it elsewhere. I think that's also a very serious and complicated scary problem.
1: because it flows from uh, uh, unhappiness with Israeli uh, policies relative to the Palestinians, and that's all gotten wrapped together.
0: Yeah, it has, and it's 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 very frustrating to me to see this. I, I, I you know, it's like there is you know the kind of hyper focus on Israel is a little disconcerting to me because I you know. China just interned a million Muslims in internment camps to re-educate them, but there's no focus on that. But it's like, there's a real focus on Israel. So I just, you know, the focus seems to be disproportionate to me, right? That That is a little troubling to me. But I also, like many Jews, I do have disagreements with what Israel's doing. So I, I'm both not thrilled with what I think is a disproportionate focus on Israel as opposed to other countries. I don't like Israel being treated differently than any other country on earth. But I have real disagreements with the Israeli government.
1: So, all of this, Sarah, what, how is it? How does it shape your thinking about the way you look at the rest of your life? Um, you know, in the life that uh, that uh, that you and I both know, it is all-consuming. It is intense, as we talked about, and it's easy to sort of uh, eclipse everything else. Um, how does this affect what you feel like you want to do with the rest of your yeah. your life, which we already uh, uh, stipulated is going to be long and healthy?
0: <laughs> you know, if I had said this five years ago, I would have been shocked. But my answer to the, your question is: I think I, I want to write another book. You know, which is I, I I would really like to write a book on God and spirituality. I think that's something that we in Judaism we're not that's not something we focus on as much right we're kind of you know we don't we we sort of focus on the doing and stuff like that but I'd like to f- focus write another book on spirituality and I don't know whether I would go back to politics maybe right not in the primary but if someone in the general or their spouse needed help of course I'm gonna help right I love my country I'm always going to help.
1: have you rethought them. politics through the lens of faith
0: I have actually I think that I now understand that basically everything I do in politics, I see it through the lens of that core in the image idea of basically every speech I'm writing is making the point that we are all infinitely worthy, equal, and totally unique. You know That, to me, is cre- is key. I also just think Judaism's real focus on the stranger, right? Like, you read the Torah 36 times. It's like, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Acts That's weird. The ancient Israelites were the strangers, right? Like, they were a bunch of, you know, like fugitive slaves, right? They were constantly getting attacked. It's like, why would you say to them, be nice to strangers? That's, that's very odd. But I think that it, it, it's basically inculcating a certain moral sensibility of you are right now an outsider. You know the pain of being vulnerable and afraid. And so you your mission, your mission on this earth is to always care for those who are outsiders, right? That is your fundamental moral orientation. And so I think, to me, that really shapes how I think about going about politics. Right, that that is that is sort of the mission that I think about. What politics is is to help those who are on the outside, who are on the margins.
1: And are there things other than politics and writing that that you could see gravitating to in order to fulfill what you that mandate?
0: You know, I think there are a lot of ways to fulfill that mandate, but for me, I think it really would be politics or writing. Mm-hmm. Those are where my passions and my skills lie.
1: Yeah. So. Um, there will be ample opportunity for both, uh, I'm sure. But it is really, it, uh, I can tell you from my own experience in writing about my own memoir, um, that it is, it is a challenging thing to write an honest book about your own journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've done that here and you've done it and it, has, and it will have value for, for others. So I'm, I'm proud of you. Congra- oh, thank you. Congratulations. You... Mazel tov. Thank you. <laughs> and um, and I can't wait to see what you do next.
0: Thank you so much, X. It has been a joy to work for and with you and to have you as a mentor and a friend. I really appreciate it.
1: Sarah Hurwitz, the book is Here All Along, Finding Meaning Spirituality and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism and then in parentheses <laughs> after finally choosing to look there. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Alison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.